Well, if you would open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, we're going to continue on our study through Revelation this morning. We'll be in Revelation chapter 3, taking a look at the last church there, the church of Laodicea. We have uh, come to the last church this morning. We've been spent the last seven weeks or the last six weeks. This morning we'll make seven, studying these seven churches. And just by way of reminder, um, these churches, these letters were, were given to the apostle John while he was on the island of Patmos. And he was going to take these letters or th- these words back to these churches. And, and they were seven churches, seven literal churches existing in these seven literal cities. And, and these were the things the Lord said, hey, I've got some things I want to tell you about what's going on in your church, about what's going on in your fellowship. But so, they, so these letters were specifically for the church for that day. But we also can take these letters and say, you know what? They're also for us personally. We can look at these personally and look at our life and go, you know what? I might be able to see myself in one of these churches. I might be able to see that I'm a little bit like this church or that church. And we also talked about last week how these churches also represent what I believe is, is a period of history, of what's called church history, starting with the, the first church all the way, the early church of the days of Christ, all the way up to, to modern day. And we have, I believe, today on the earth, the church of, of Philadelphia, which we studied last week. And we also have the church of Laodicea, which is known as the lukewarm church. That's the church we're going to be studying this morning is Laodicea. So let's pick up in chapter uh, 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea of the Laodiceans write. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out. Of my mouth. This is not the church that we want to be like. If you'll notice, he had nothing good to say to them at all. He starts right out with the problem with them. But before we get there, I want you to notice in verse 14 to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Again, it's repetitive, but he's writing to the angel that would oversee the church or the messenger or the leader of the church in that day. So if you were overseeing a church, or he, John brings this letter and says, here, this is, what, this is what Jesus wants to tell you about your church. This is what he has to say. And before we go too far, I want to give you a little bit of background into, into the city of Laodicea. It sat along a highway running from Ephesus to Syria. It's about 10 miles northwest of Colossae, which is where the book of Colossians, the city of Colossae, the book of Colossians was written to those people there. It's about six miles southwest of a city called Hariopolis or Areopolis. Now, we know in the, when, it, when it comes to the city of Areopolis, we know Paul wrote a letter to the city of Areopolis, but we don't have any record of that letter. The book of Colossians mentions the letter that he wrote to the city of Areopolis in Colossians chapter 4. But we don't have any record of it. So we know that they were tightly knit. Then Paul's letters would be read in, in, in the directions there in Colossians. He said, I want you to read the letter to Areopolis. And I want you to read the, I want both churches to read both letters. There's good stuff in both of them for you. But a little bit of background on the city. It's well known for its, well, it was a wealthy city. It had a lot of money. It was very, very wealthy. As a matter of fact, in 60 AD, which is about, probably about 30 years before this was written, the city was destroyed by an earthquake. And completely destroyed, and they actually rebuilt the city using their own resources. They, the history tells us the Roman government offered to help, and they said, no, thank you. We don't need your help. So it was, it was a very, very wealthy city. And uh, it was also very, what, one of the things they were doing is they, they were very big in the textile industry. They were producing clothing. They had an interesting, interesting thing about the city is they had, uh, 
They had black sheep, literally black sheep. Most sheep are what color? White country folks. See, we know this. Most sheep are white. They actually had black sheep. Black sheep produce black wool. This particular wool was in high demand. It was something that they were making a lot of money off of, and they were able to produce clothing that was kind of this black, shiny fabric, and, and they, were, they were selling it, and they were making money off of it. They were also in the banking industry. They, they were, they, when you have money, what do you do? You loan money to make more money. So they're in the banking industry. They're also in the entertainment industry. They had an amphitheater there that sat about 30,000 people in Laodicea. So they were interested. They were in the theater industry and the, in the, the, the races and the things like that to, to entertain the people with. But they were also known for their medical breakthroughs. They had a medical school there specifically that was dealing with, they had, they had developed this, this eye salve and this ear salve that would help people with eye problems so they could help them see clearly. So this was a pretty happening place. It was a lot going on there. But then Jesus comes in, and before he tells them what's wrong, he identifies himself in three ways. Look what he says. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He identifies himself three ways, the first of which he says, I'm the amen. Not amen, the amen. And you guys have used that word. Somebody says something, you say amen. Well, what does it really mean? Well, in the Greek, it's amen. It wasn't really changed. It was translated, if you were to look it up in Greek, it's literally A-M-E-N. It, or it's pronounced amen. And uh, what does it really mean? It means so be it. So be it. So if someone were to say something, you were to say amen, it's almost like you're saying so be it. It's been established. It's going to happen. You believe that it's going to take place. It literally means the affirmation of what has been declared. So if I were to declare something, you're affirming it to be true. Jesus says, I am the amen. I am the affirmation of what has been declared. In other words, Jesus is the affirmation of God. He's the affirmation of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen. In other words, what it's saying is all the promises of God are seen in Jesus Christ, or fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the amen. But he also says, I'm the faithful and true witness. I'm the faithful and true witness. It's speaking of his sovereignty here. He's trustworthy and he's truthful. Notice it doesn't say that I'm speaking truthfully. He says, I am truth. I am, I am the faithful and true witness. I'm not just saying something truthful. I literally, that, that, that it comes from me. I am, there's, there's nothing false about me. I am the faithful and the true witness. And it goes on in the third thing he identifies himself, the beginning of the creation of God. The beginning of the creation of God. Wait a minute, Rob, you're just so, you just said by reading that verse that Jesus was created. That's not really what it's saying at all. Well, yeah, it does. It says the beginning of the creation of God. It's not saying he was the first creation. That word for beginning, if you're taking note, jot it down. It means this, one who or that which constitutes an initial cause. It means origin. So creation is what it's saying. By, by, by using that Greek word, it's saying creation came forth from Jesus Christ. He's the one that did the creating. He wasn't created, it came forth. And it's, if you've ever talked to somebody who, who sides on the fence, well, no, Jesus was created by God, oftentimes they'll go to this verse. Circle it in your Bible. Write it down. Write origin next to it. Write down so you know what it means, that you know that it's, it's one, it's, it's from, it's where an initial cause comes from. It's, it's the origin of something. But we also see that confirmed in Colossians chapter 1. 
Verse 15, it says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is there, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist or are held together. So it's a common thing that we see throughout Scripture. And what he's saying is, listen, let me put it to you guys. I'm the amen. I'm faithful. I'm true. I'm the creator of all things is what Jesus is saying. And now I'm coming into your church there in Laodicea, and I want to talk to you about some things that I see wrong. Notice he doesn't have anything that he sees right. And here's what he says in verse 15. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You see, when we read this, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. Because lukewarm, I don't really like the word vomit. I, I, cold, hot, what, what are you really referring to them to? What are you really referring to there? But here's the thing. They understood, because of the history of that city, exactly what he was talking about. And let me explain it to you. You see, one of the problems in Laodicea, while they had a great city and a wealthy city, one of the problems they had was they didn't have a very good water supply. They really didn't have a good water supply. And as you can imagine, a city has to have water to live off of. So what they did with all of their money, they used their wealth. And they said, well, we don't have water here. We'll just bring water to us. So they created an aqueduct to go from Areopolis to Laodicea about six miles long. Now, Areopolis was known for their sulfur hot springs. So up in Areopolis, these sulfur hot springs, hot water is coming up out of the ground. But by the time it got six miles south to Laodicea, guess what it was? It was lukewarm. But they also created an aqueduct over to Colossae. Colossae was known for their cool springs, their cold water springs. But by the time it came 10 miles down to Laodicea, guess what it was? It was tempid. It was lukewarm. It was just, it was room temperature, if you will. So when he's making this reference to them, their mind says, he's talking about the water. We, we, we have hot water, but because it was a sulfur spring, what is salt? You ever smelled sulfur? What's it smell like? It stinks. It smells like rotten eggs, exactly. So here's what he's saying. Your spiritual condition is stinky and lukewarm. That's really what he's saying to them. And they understood that. That was told to them in a way that they, would, that they would be able to grasp. So Jesus says to them, your spiritual condition is just like your water. It's lukewarm and it stinks. It stinks. As a matter of fact, he says it stinks so bad I would like to vomit you out of my mouth. But he sets up here for us three, three spiritual conditions, if you will. The first thing he sets up is cold. Cold, hot, and lukewarm. Cold, hot, and lukewarm. As we come across these spiritual conditions, what do you think the, the cold spiritual condition means? It means, that, that word for cold, it literally means cold or, or, or chilly or freezing. It's, it's the person who says, you know what, I don't want anything to do with God. 
I'm not into Jesus. I'm not into the Bible. That's what you do, and that works for you. You go right ahead and serve your Lord and go to church on Sunday, but I'm going to sleep in and watch cartoons. I don't have any interest in doing that whatsoever. I'm going to go do whatever it is that I want to do, and thanks, but no thanks. I'm glad it works for you. That's the cold person. That's the cold. Well, the hot person, that's just the opposite. That's the person who, the the term literally means boiling. They're on fire for the Lord. I want to serve the Lord. What does the Lord have for me? What does his word say? I want to spend time with him. I want to pray. I'm at Sunday service, midweek service. Whatever I can do, my, my life is becoming about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come across the lukewarm. The lukewarm, and that's, that's somewhere in between hot and cold. Well, you're not cold. You, you haven't rejected Christ. You haven't rejected God. But you're not really serving the Lord as a church. You're just, you're just kind of there. You're just kind of existing. That's, that's, the lukewarm, that's the lukewarm church. And notice what Jesus says. I can deal with the cold because they know they're separate from me. And I like the hot because they're on fire for me. But the lukewarm, they're in the worst place of all because they don't know that they're lukewarm. You see, the lukewarm church thinks they're hot but they're really lukewarm. The lukewarm Christian thinks he's hot or she's hot. I'm serving the Lord. I'm doing things for God. But they don't really realize they're lukewarm. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about the lukewarm church. He says this, they have prayer meetings, but there are few present for they like quiet evenings at home better. And when more attend the meetings, they are still very dull for they do their praying very deliberately and they're afraid of being too excited. They are content to have all things done decently in an order, but vigor and zeal are considered to be vulgar. They have many schools, Bible classes, preaching rooms, and all sorts of agencies, but they might as well be without them, for no energy is displayed and no good comes of them. They have deacons and elders who are excellent pillars of the church, if the chief quality of pillars be to stand still and exhibit no motion or emotion. The pastor does not fly very far in his preaching the everlasting gospel, and he certainly has no flame of fire in his preaching. The pastor may be a shining light of eloquence, but he certainly is not a burning light of grace, setting men's hearts on fire. Everything is done half-hearted, listless, dead in a live way, as if it did not matter much whether it was done or not. Things are respectably done. The rich families are not offended. The skeptical party is conciliated. And the good people are not quite alienated. Things are made pleasant all around. The right things are done, but as to doing them with all your might and your soul and your strength, a Laodicean church has no notion of what that means. They're not cold as to abandon their work or to give up their meetings for prayer or to reject the gospel. You see, they are neither hot for the truth, nor hot for conversions, nor hot for holiness. They are not fiery enough to burn the stubble of sin, nor zealous enough to make Satan angry, nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither cold nor hot. That's what Charles Spurgeon had to say. It's a church that's just existing. It's just, it's just going through the motions. It's a church, it's a church that we're getting together, we're doing the things, but there's no zeal, there's no passion. There's just, there's just, we, we just do this because we've always done it. Charles Spurgeon says that church is the lukewarm church, or Jesus, rather, says that, that church is the lukewarm church. But, Rob, how do we apply that to ourselves? 
You see, because as a whole, the body of Christ is made up of people. For a church to become lukewarm, guess what has to happen? The people have to be lukewarm. The pastor has to become lukewarm. What does that look like? What would that look like? What do you think lukewarm would look like in the life of a believer? I got some things I jotted down. A lukewarm, per, a lukewarm person is someone who's conflicted. They're on the fence when it comes to following God or following the world. They're living a life of compromise. They're not having victory over sin. They're back and forth. I want to be part of the church in that group, but I also want to be part of this group. I want to hang out with these friends over here, but, I'd ra- but I also want to go out over here. They're conflicted. They're back and forth. Both things are important to me. That's lukewarm, Jesus would say. That's, that's not hot. That's not cold. That's lukewarm. You're, you're stuck on both sides. So a lukewarm person is someone who is, who's rarely convicted by the Holy Spirit. They've been away from the Lord so long, they just keep doing what their flesh wants them to do. They just keep going in the same direction. They don't even hear the voice of the Lord anymore. They don't even, hear, they don't, they don't even present that guilt that says, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be saying that. You shouldn't think like that. It's not even there. It's just we, just, we just go and we live that way. A lukewarm person is someone who does not take the Bible seriously. A lukewarm person looks at the scripture and says, eh, yeah, that book, it was written a couple of thousand years ago. It's not, it's not up to date. It's not modern. It's not, we, need to, we need to change. You know, I don't believe all of it. I just believe some of it. It's a lukewarm, per, a lukewarm person doesn't see the word of God as the word of God. They don't see it as relative for today as it was back in the day that it was written. They just see it as, yeah, it's just a book. It's just, it's just something we do in church. Can I encourage you that if you ever decide to leave this church and go someplace else, if they do not open the Bible every Sunday and teach from the word, you need to go find another church. Because that's why you're here. If, if I was to stop opening the Bible and I could just start talking about politics and I could start talking about this and maybe I could get, take some joke classes on how to do jokes and be funny and make you laugh and all that kind of stuff and, and I could even draw a crowd that way without the word of God, don't leave. There's no, there's, no, there's no purpose for gathering. We're no different than any other social club that would get together. But the lukewarm person, does, the, the word of God doesn't burn in their heart. It's not something they desire. They don't go to the word of God and say, Lord, show me something about myself. Teach me something about myself. Show me something about you, Lord. Minister to me today through your word. It just it, it gets closed and not opened again until next Sunday. It's just put on the shelf. It's just, it's not, there's no interest in it. A lukewarm person is someone who doesn't take sin seriously. A lukewarm person has no problems with sin, not only with their own sin. Ah, they, they, they make excuses for it. We, we just, it's, it's just, it's just, it's the culture. It's what everybody's doing. It's just, it's just how I get by. It's, it's what I cope. It's my coping mechanism. It's, it, it's, I'm not that bad. There's no conviction over sin. I'm not talking, please understand, I'm not saying a lukewarm, you know, a, a, a hot Christian has no sin. I'm saying a lukewarm person just excuses their sin. There's just no passion. There's no, there's no desire to even get past it. They're just living with it. It's just everyday life. It's just who I am. It's just, it's so why? I'm not as bad as this guy or that person or her or him. It's just, it's who I am. There's just no conviction in, in sin. They don't take it seriously in their life. And they can watch it without being convicted of it. They can sit and enjoy watching a TV show with sin and, and it doesn't bother them. They can sit and enjoy watching a movie with, where, where the Lord's name's being taken in vain. And they don't, they don't say, man, this, this is just not right. It doesn't make them uncomfortable. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's not, sin isn't serious to them. You see, if, if I'm dealing with sin in my own life, the last thing I want to do is watch it on television. 
The last thing I want to do is see it in a movie. The last thing I want to do is go to work and talk about it with somebody else. I want, I want it removed from me. I don't want it being brought to my mind. I want, it, I want it gone. I want the word of God to be brought to my mind. A lukewarm Christian is someone who doesn't really have a witness for Christ at all. They don't really have a witness for Christ at all. They practice a mild form of Christianity. They don't want to offend anybody. Christ really hasn't done anything in their life. Maybe they've gotten saved. They went forward. They said a prayer. They've given their life to Christ. But from that point, nothing else has happened. They're still living very much in the world. They're not coming out of the world. They're they're still very much there. Nobody might even know that you're a Christian if you're a lukewarm Christian. Well, I wouldn't want to offend anybody at work. I don't want to, I don't want to tell anybody. I, I just, I, I just, I just, that, that's, what a, that's what a lukewarm Christian would be like. Now, as I, as, I, as I mention those things, I want you to understand, going back to these positions, going back to this cold, lukewarm, and hot, they're, they're not transitional. And what I mean by that is you don't start out as a cold person and then go to a lukewarm person and then go to a hot person. The lukewarm shouldn't even be involved in that. It, it's from cold to hot. It's from cold to hot. We don't go cold, lukewarm, and hot. And here's what I want you to understand. A lukewarm person doesn't know they're lukewarm. A lukewarm Christian doesn't know that they're really a lukewarm Christian. So if, you, if I read some of those things and you're going, man, that sounds like me. I think I'm in trouble. i got to really deal with that. The Lord might be speaking to you this morning, but if, by the mere fact that you're concerned about it, I don't think you're a lukewarm Christian. Because if you look at that and go, you know what? I, that, 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 that could be me. Well, if the Lord's speaking to your heart in that direction, yes, it could be you. But if you're one of those people who's always worried in every church I've gone through, you go, well, that's me. I'm the church of Ephesus. I'm the church this. I'm that church. I'm this church. Well, you might not be the lukewarm church. You might be the one that the Lord is really working in your heart. But if the Lord is speaking to your heart this morning that says, you know what? A lot of those things, that's you. Then he's going to give you, he's going to give you how to fix that. He's going to give you the solution to the problem here in just a little bit. But here's what we look at. Here's what he says in verse 16. So then because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Is there anything more disgusting? I mean, doesn't that just project a picture of disgust? Doesn't it project of, the Lord says, listen, Rob, wouldn't it be better? Isn't lukewarm better than cold? God says no, no. He says it's worse to think you're saved and not be saved than to know you're not saved. Because if you know you're not saved, I can still come after you. You still realize that God is missing from your life. You still realize there's an emptiness. But if you're lukewarm, you think you are saved. You think that you've got everything. I'm doing great. Everything's fine. It's just wonderful. God says I'd rather have you cold. Because if you're cold, then you know you're apart from me. You know you're apart. I'd rather have you hot. Personally, that's what he's, he really wants us hot. But he goes, at least if you're cold, there's still a hope there for me to draw you back. But if you're lukewarm, you think everything's going okay. And that's exactly what Laodicea would say. As he was ministering, you can imagine sitting in the congregation there in Laodicea, this letter's being read. You get to the point where he's talking about vomiting you out of your mouth, and you're going, wait a minute, he's not talking to us. We're not lukewarm. That's not us. That, he, we must have got the wrong letter here. Go back and get the right letter. This is not us. They would naturally ask the question, how are we lukewarm? What is it that makes us lukewarm? How come you're saying that to us? And look what he says in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
There's two different views here. Jesus says to the church, you're lukewarm because you're rich, you've become wealthy, and you've said, I don't need anything. They're self-sufficient. They don't need God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, Jesus said. And what it means by that is the wealthier somebody becomes, the less they rely on Jesus, the less they rely on the Lord. When's the last time you had to pray for food? When's the last time you really had to say, Lord, I haven't eaten in three days and I really need to get some food? Chances are most of us in this room, most of us in this country have never done that. This country is a wealthy country. People don't have to go hungry here. There's there's programs and things available for them. He's saying, Jesus is saying, your wealth, your wealth can keep you from me. Now, please understand something. Your wealth, somebody that has wealth is not a bad thing. It's just a question, does your wealth have you? I can have wealth, you can have wealth, and still be serving the Lord with all that we have. But the question is, does my wealth have me? In other words, is my wealth, is your wealth, is that what's grabbed a hold of you? Remember the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus, he said, what do I have to do to be saved? Jesus said, keep all the commandments. And he goes, I've done that, I'm good. He goes, now sell everything you have and give it to the poor. I can't do that. I can't do that. And he walked away because, he, because his wealth was more important than the Lord. That's what it was. I can't give away what I have. Jesus said, give away everything I have. I can't do that. Could you do that with your wealth if the Lord said so? The Lord said, I want you to give it all away. Well, Lord, that wouldn't be very good stewardship now, would it? You called us to be good stewards, so we have to. I'm not suggesting anybody should give anything away. But what I am saying is we need to ask ourselves the question, because we live in a wealthy country and because we have a lot of stuff, do I have my stuff or does my stuff have me? If your stuff has you, it's time to start getting rid of some of your stuff that has you. Now, if you have to get rid of stuff because your stuff has you, don't look at the guy that has stuff that doesn't have him, that's using it and enjoying it for family or for the Lord or whatever. Go, well, that's not fair. He has it. That's, don't you worry about yourself and what's going on in your own life, not what's going on in your neighbor's life. But always make sure that our wealth and our stuff doesn't have a hold of us because it's very easy to begin to worship that stuff or that wealth and we'll find ourselves worshiping, trying to worship both gods at the same time. And what does the Bible say? You cannot worship God and money. For you will love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. It's a simple matter of priority in your life. But here in Laodicea, they're looking at themselves as, and saying, hey, we're doing great. The church says, I'm rich. We've become wealthy. We have need of nothing. We're doing great. We're, we're experiencing material prosperity. Everything's wonderful. We're being blessed. The Lord's blessing us with all this stuff and this money and the banking. And we have great clothes and black sheep. And we're making ISAV over at the medical school. We're doing all this wonderful stuff. And look what Jesus says. This is how they saw themselves. And Jesus says to them, you're lukewarm. You're wretched. You're suffering. You're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. How does that happen? How can I possibly see myself as doing so well and being so blessed, yet the Lord would look at me and say, you're you're wretched, which means miserable? You're suffering? You're poor, you're blind, you're naked? Oh, Lord, you must have the wrong church now. You don't understand, we're not naked. We have black sheep with black clothing. We have fancy clothes. We're not blind. We have a, an eye, a medical school producing eye salve. 
We're not blind. We're, we can, we're, we're helping people see. Oh, we're not poor, Lord. We're not poor. We have lots of food. And the Lord says, no, no. You're looking on the outside, and I'm looking on the inside. You're looking at your outward circumstances, your outward conditions. And the Lord says, I'm looking at your spiritual condition. I'm looking at what's going on in your heart. You might be wealthy outside, but inside, you're poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. You're poor. Blessed, you're blind. You can't even see. You're blind. How are they blind? They couldn't even see that they were poor. They would have looked and said, given themselves an A-plus evaluation. We're doing great. We're doing fantastic. You're naked. We're not naked. We make, our, we make the great clothes. We have black sheep. Isn't it funny how he uses the culture there to tell them exactly what he thinks of them and what's going on? Sometimes those people who are wealthy and don't think they need Jesus are really suffering and miserable with a big empty spot in their life that only Jesus can fill. But they see Jesus as a weakness. They see the Lord. They see God. I don't need God. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I don't need anything. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you don't have him, you're blind, you're naked, you're poor, you're miserable, and you're wretched. That's not true. Yes, it is. I guarantee it. If you look hard enough, people might not admit that to you. But the closer you get to know somebody, someone without Christ, you're going to find those characteristics deep inside their soul. Because that's what it means to be without Christ. So when you're thinking this week, hey, i got to share the gospel with my friend and he might not hear me or she might not hear me, think this is, really, this is really what's going on in their heart. Especially if they're a churchgoer and they could be lukewarm. That's the worst place to be. You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Hopefully, the church hears this. Hopefully, because if someone was to say this about you, what would your first reaction be? You must have the wrong letter. You must have, not me. Not me. I gave money to the church. I helped build the church. I helped build the aqueduct. I did this in the community. I did that. But hopefully this church says, you know what? We are missing something. We are. We are. The question they should be asking next, what do we do about it? You're right, Lord. I am in this situation. You're right. I am lukewarm. You're right. We are this way. We've come to this place. The, the, the study's not over. Isn't that good? Isn't it, isn't it good it doesn't end here? All right, too bad, you're lukewarm. You're, that's it, you're done. Goodbye, everybody go home. No. You see, the, even as we sit here this morning, as, as I study this on myself, there's, there's parts of my heart that get convicted. You know, and here's what he says. What do we do about it? Look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. Jesus says, I want you to do three things. I want you to buy gold refined in the fire. Gold is a picture of wealth, right? Even today, the more gold you have, the wealthier you are. Gold is a picture of wealth. And he says, listen, buy gold from me. Buy your wealth from me. Get wealthy in the spiritual side. Don't get wealthy in the, in the physical side. Everything on the earth is going to burn one day. It doesn't matter how much money somebody has here. When you die, you can't take it with you. You're going to give most of it to the government. He says, get your wealth from me. Get the things you need from me. And then he says to them, buy from me white garments. What a contrast. They were making black garments. They had black sheep. They were making black wool. He says, don't worry about the worldly stuff. Buy from me white garments, righteous garments, dipped in the blood of Christ. That's what everybody's going to be wearing in heaven. No one's going to go to heaven with a black sweater. 
or a black, they're going to be wearing the, the garments of the Christ, the garments of righteousness. That's what we're going to have to wear. Get them from me, he says. You can't get them from anywhere else. You want to put on righteousness, you have to get it from the Lord. You can't get it on your own. Then he says to them, anoint your eyes with eye salve. That's where the medical school was, where they were dealing with eyes. That's where they were healing people and, and providing medicine for people with, with illness to their eyes. He says, put on some eye salve. Put on, come, open your eyes to see the things of God. See the, thing, see the spiritual side of things. There's, there's a spiritual side that you're missing. You're missing it, he says. You see, the change in the Laodiceans had to begin with the understanding that they're, that they're in spiritual poverty. They have to, in order for them to change, they have to come to the place that says we're spiritually broke. They have to realize I'm broke at this point. He's absolutely right in what he's saying. Yes, we've got all the money. Yes, we've got the medical school. Yes, we've got, we're making clothes. Yes, we're prosperous from the banking industry. And we're, we're doing well. But spiritually, spiritually, we're disconnected. We're, we're, we're broke. We're in spiritual poverty. You see, once they come to that place, that's when the Lord can say, I can help you get out of that place. Same thing with our life as well. As we look around, as we, as our, we think about friends and family, you can have somebody who's, who's physically wealthy, lots of money, maybe worked their whole life and got a lot of money. If they're spiritually broke, Jesus would say the same thing. You're poor, naked, wretched, miserable, and blind. And he'd say, I would counsel you to get your wealth from me. Come get it from me. Buy the garments. Come get the righteousness from me. Let me open your eyes to the things of the Lord. You see, they had to come to the place where they realized the spiritual poverty. As long as we believe we can meet the needs for wealth, clothing, and sight ourselves, we can never receive them from Jesus. As long as we can meet all of our needs ourselves, we're never going to see them from Jesus. We must seek these things from Jesus instead of relying on them ourselves. Rob, why aren't there miracles today? We don't need them. We don't need nearly I mean, if someone falls down and gets hurt, where do you take them? The emergency room. Go to the doctors, and this doctor can't help you, have a specialist. Go to another doctor, he can't help you, go to another specialist. Have enough money, you can go to the best doctors in the world. Now, certainly they can't keep you alive all the time, but the medical profession has come a long way from what it was back in Laodicea. The doctors in the medical field can do a pretty good job of keeping us alive and helping us for longer than most. At this point, there has a tendency for me to think, wow, Lord, you're being a little hard on them, don't you think? I mean, you've been a little rough on this church. You've, they, they thought they didn't, you know, when they got this letter, they were expecting to hear, great job. You guys are doing great. Keep it up. Keep serving the Lord. Keep giving money. And instead, you've given them a complete opposite view of the, who they really are. And look what he says. Verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Lord, you're not being hard on them. You just love them. Why? Because you don't want to see them in that same condition. You want to see them get past this condition. You don't want them to be lukewarm forever. If you didn't care, you'd just write them off. But he says this, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. If you're not being rebuked by the Lord, if you don't feel like you're being chastened by the Lord when you come to his word from time to time, if you've never felt that, then i got to tell you, you really need to question whether or not you're really saved. And I mean that. Rob, that's not true. Yeah, I'm, I mean that is true. If you can't sit through a Bible study or sit through the study of the Word of God and you go, ah, it doesn't bother me, I don't really care, then you really got to question if you're really saved or not. Because you might be this lukewarm church. 
Because Jesus is saying to them, listen, I love you. I don't want to leave you in the condition that you're in. I want you to come out of that. I've got more for you. It's great you got money. It's great you're helping. It's great your city's thriving. It's great your church is, is wealthy and it's a big church and there's things going on and there's programs and all this stuff and it looks good from the outside. But you're lukewarm. And I don't want you to stay lukewarm. You see, if he didn't care, he would have ended it already. But he does care. And he's even told them why he's being so hard on them. He says, because I love you. It's like being a parent. It's going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Oh, no, it's not. That's what we said as kids, right? But he says, listen, I love you. That's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm holding you accountable to this. That's why I'm doing this to you. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase. And look what he says next. Therefore, be zealous. The word means to be eager. Be eager and what? Be eager and repent. Every single letter, every single thing that he's told every single church, he ends it with what? Repent. Repent. I'm telling you this so you can fix it, so that you won't continue in the way that you're in, so that you don't have to be a lukewarm church. You don't have to be a lukewarm Christian. It's real easy. Be eager and repent. Be zealous. I don't, do, I, don't wanna, I don't want this anymore. I want to change. And you simply repent because there's a promise that comes along with everyone as well. He says, here's why. Because I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is not saying, I want you to repent for his sake. He's saying, I want you to repent for their sake. He tells that to us for, for our sake. But here's the verse we all know. Behold, he's standing at the door and he's knocking. He's outside of the church door. The door's closed. He's not even invited in. He's standing there knocking. He says, if, if anyone, can anyone in the church hear my voice? Anyone, will you open the door? Will you, will you let me in? It's been said that there's a door with the door handle only on the inside. Notice he's not about to put his foot through the door. Notice he's not about to walk through the door. Notice he's waiting for what? An invitation. He's saying, listen, will you, will, will you, will you let me in? Will you let me come in? If you'll let me come in, it even makes it worth your while. Listen, if you'll let me come in, I'll come into you. I'll dine with you and you with me. We're going to commune. We're going we're gonna to sup together. We're going to be dining together. And not only that, I'll grant you, I'll grant you to sit, on, sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is the greatest promise of all the churches that we've seen. He said, Listen, if you'll just let me in, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. But as he's standing outside the door knocking, I picture this. Do you ever get an unexpected guest at your house? And they're knocking. And you go, oh. and what do you start doing? You start cleaning up, right? You start putting this, stuff goes under the bed, stuff goes in the closet. I can't believe they came without calling. They're trying to get everything cleaned up, and, and they're out there knocking. Maybe they'll go away. And Jesus is looking at it this way. And you're thinking, people think the same thing. Let me get my life cleaned up, Lord, and then I'll let you in. Let me get my life cleaned up, and then come back in a few years, and then I'll let you in. Come back and, and, you know, once I get married and have kids, I'll stop this life. Let me, let me get it cleaned up. And here's what he's outside saying, listen, if you'll let me in, I'll clean it up. I got the Trinity Cleaning Center. We can come in and clean this place like you wouldn't believe. 
We get hot Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cleaning in there. We can wipe this place out. and get, We don't have to hide it. We'll just remove it. We'll just get it out. This is the promise. Not only, that, not only will I come in and I'll sup with you, I'll dine with you. I'm going to give you, you're going to sit with me on my throne. I'm going to bring you with me. You see, there's a contrast here. The lukewarm church could say, that's not us. You got the wrong church. You must be mistaken. Or they could open their heart to what the Lord's doing and say, wow, that has been us. We've been off. Repent. Let him in and watch what he does. When it's put this way, don't you have to be stupid not to want Jesus in your life? I mean, you have to look at this and go, well, no, I don't want Jesus to come in. I don't want to die. And I certainly don't want to sit on his throne. I'd rather burn in hell. I mean, you have to be just plain out stupid. But then he says in the very last verse, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let, let him hear what the Spirit says. You see, as we come to the last church, we're going to celebrate communion together this morning because I want to give you guys a, some time as we've traveled through these churches. I know for a fact that if you're saved, you've been convicted by some of the things that we've read. And maybe even this morning as it comes to the lukewarm church, maybe you're going, that's, that's me. Listen, it's real simple. What does he say to do? Repent. Be zealous and repent. Be eager and repent and come back to him. Don't be the person that goes, well, that's not me. That, 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 I, I'm not, that's not me at all. As I study these, this church specifically, as I, as I read to you those characteristics of, of a lukewarm person, there's a part of me that goes, wow, sometimes I do that. Sometimes, I, sometimes I'm that way. You know? But a lukewarm person doesn't want to change it. They just accept it and move on. But a follower of Christ says, you know what, I don't want to be that way. I hear that knock on the door. I'm going to let him in. I'm not going to clean up first. I'm going to let him in just the way that he is. And then he comes in and he makes all things new. And he begins changing and he begins cleaning and he begins removing. But they had to realize they were in spiritual poverty before that could happen. And it's the same thing for us.